This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is episode two of our four-part series discussing Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And today we will finish our discussion of uh, part one of this book, chapters one through five, and begin to transition into the second part. In other words, we will explore a progressive world of perfect containment and stability before shifting to a primitive one of risk and possibility. In episode one, uh, we introduced Huxley, the writer and the thinker. We toured Brave New World's hatchery in chapters one through two, the beginnings. Uh, The hatchery is where they mass produce humans, assembly line style, and we see that the world is genetically and biochemically uh, engineered into fixed classes. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon. For Huxley, the uh, political and economic leadership in our world has an interest in freezing the path for upward mobility and making sure all the political and economic power stays exactly where it is. And whoever is at the top has an interest in using the power of science and technology to uh, produce a controllable, standardized man. Uh, the standardized man would be a perfect man, or at least an artificially crafted perfect one, perfectly engineered for his uh, predetermined role on this earth. Uh, You know, Huxley uses a theological term, predestined there. (laughs) The overarching metaphor that really pervades the novel is inspired by Henry Ford. In uh, 1903, the Ford Motor Company was formed. The first product was a Model A, introduced in the same year. Uh, In order to produce a standardized car that everyone could afford, Ford introduced to the world and perfected the idea of the the assembly line production. Their most successful product ever was the Model T, and that came out in September in 1908. In 1909, a brand new, get ready for the cost of a car right here, (laughs) the brand new Model T cost $850. But wait. By uh, 1924, because of the assembly line and the efficiency in production, the price had gone down to only $260. The average assembly line worker could purchase one with four months' pay in 1914. Everyone could drive a Model T. Eventually, 15 million Model Ts were manufactured and sold, and it's estimated that 40% of American households owned one at some point. Wow. 
Well, in Huxley's world, Ford is divine. The assembly line model is the template for life. Community, identity, and stability. These are globally accepted ideals. Man is standardized, produced in hatcheries like the one we visited in the Central London Hatcheries and Conditioning Center. We can observe the process of fertilizing the eggs, bottling them, putting the lower casts through the Pukhanovsky process, then finally decanting them, or as they call it, preparing them for independent existence. We call it birthing, but you can't really be birthed out of a bottle. So I, I kind of think the term decanting as a replacement for birthing is kind of funny. <laughs> right. They, they treat the word birthing as uh, just the... Yes, the, that's uh, a bad word. It's a cuss word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Bokanovsky process in particular involves grotesque biological engineering. It's where lower castes are uh, prenatally treated with x-rays. Then they're basically doused with alcohol and other poisons uh, to be almost subhuman, but, you know, capable of performing mind-numbing tasks. It's fetal alcohol poisoning, uh, scientifically administered for the purpose of subjugation. But they don't just poison the embryos. They also deprive the brains of oxygen during the assembly line process for, and I quote the director here, there is nothing like oxygen shortage for keeping an embryo below par. <laughs> I guess that's true. This is not considered immoral because these epsilons are still perfect. They're perfectly designed to do what they were designed to do perfectly. You see, I just used a chiasmus there. Yes, that was a perfect chiasmus. <laughs> uh, but the process of creating the perfect human does not end when the person is decanted from the bottle. That's just the first of it. It involves a lot of psychological conditioning. That's not just for the lower caste. It's not just de um, deltas and epsilons that go through conditioning. Everyone does. Everyone has to believe in this process. They must understand what they are meant to do, and they must agree with it. The subjugation of the entire race must be perceived as being voluntary. In fact, the subjugation must be perceived as freedom. Is this another example where he, whatever he says a thing is, it isn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is. He does that a lot here. You know, this is the key difference between how Huxley saw the power elites controlling the world versus how Orwell thought it would occur, uh, or really how Stalin and Hitler tried to control the world. Up to this point in history, um, all totalitarian governments have used fear as a primary method of keeping people in their place. And in this world, uh, subjugation is not by guns in a police state. It's primarily biotechnological, psychological, and chemically engineered. And we are engineered to believe and accept our subjugation. And Huxley creates a world uh, where instead of being controlled by fear or outside tools, man is controlled through rewards from the inside. And look at the rewards and tools he uses. I mean, euphoria producing drugs, de-individualized sex. I mean, in this podcast, we follow Huxley's thinking as he argues that man, uh, often is through science and technology, can and perhaps even easily may be seduced to surrender, not just his uh, individuality, but ultimately his own significance. And we made the suggestion that, that chapters one and two is the story of the beginning of a man in a brave new world and could 
and should be compared to the beginning chapters of the Bible and uh, that story of the beginning of man. Uh, today, we will leave the beginnings in the hatchery and explore this brave new world on the outside. Uh, we'll follow two of its products, Marks and Linina, through a typical evening of drug, take, drug taking, uh, sexual promiscuity, and Ford worship, <laughs> of all things. I know. I do want to revisit after that introduction of what our activities are going to be, <laughs> uh, the, the, the biblical comparison, because I think it's important that we notice the difference. You know, in the biblical narrative, God creates one man and one woman as individuals. He gives them free will, which they immediately use, which results in their choices, which ultimately, ultimately these choices bring us the first story of murder tragedy, or sadness. Now, why is this interesting? Because in Brave New World, we have a factory mass produces, I mean, this factory is mass producing alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, and epsilons. These are groups. They're not individuals. And they're conditioned to have no will of their own. They're conditioned to this group identity. Everyone belongs to everyone else is a phrase whispered in everyone's ear tens of thousands of times from decanting onward until it is just accepted. No one is unique in any way. No one is linked to any person in any exclusive kind of way. The M word, mother, is a shameful profanity. There are no partners. There's no attachment to anyone except yourself. But, you know, there's no murder either. Monogamous sex is discouraged to the point of being practically forbidden. Erotic play is encouraged starting at age six. I mean, this is a very different story from the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are given to each other and, in fact, made for each other. In the Brave New World, we have a garden, but it perpetuates itself. Technology has created abundance. It has eliminated tragedy. It's created universal happiness for all. Members are all alike. They're conditioned to like what they do and to not want what they can't have. As Lenina and Henry talk about this on their date in chapter five, this is what they say. Even epsilons are useful. We couldn't do without epsilons. Everyone works for everyone else. And then she further seems to reflect, I suppose, that epsilons don't mind being epsilons. <laughs> and to which her partner Henry responds, well, her date or whatever, of course they don't. How can they? They don't know what it's like to be anything else. We'd mind, of course, but then we've been differently conditioned. So here's this world where leisure is available for all. Pleasure and escape are the ultimate goals. And as long as a person takes his soma, participates in the orgies, which are things that are designed to be pleasurable, there are no felt needs. The garden perpetuates itself. Man has produced... 632 years after that assembly line, first assembly line, standardized, manufactured happiness. Truly a brave new world. But yet, when I say it, it seems ironic coming out of my mouth. Interesting. <laughs> would, would this be like him saying, uh, it's this, but it's really not, it's that? <laughs> I know, but you know, Seems what's to be the a same? Theme. What's bad about it? Uh, well, yes, chapters three through five show life as a gift from the state. And not just life, but happiness is a gift from the state. But I point out that happiness uh, is also the means for the perpetuation of the brave new world. Um, from a political and economic point of view, I mean, this is very important. 
It is literally a technique to maintain and exercise pretty much limitless power. When we get to chapter 6, Huxley will switch worlds on us and present an alternative to this very progressive world, uh, an unprogressive. He's going to give us a primitive world, and it isn't ideal. It also isn't free from outside control. Technology always controls non-technology on the outside. But we do get to see a few differences that Huxley thinks are worth noticing. Yeah, and I know we're getting into the next section of the book, which is a bit of a spoiler. Uh, But I do want to point out that Huxley's unprogressive alternative is not better. In fact, it's arguably worse. Both worlds are designed to be horrific, just in opposite ways. When discussing his book many years later, Huxley did say that that was the problem with this book. (laughs) There weren't any positive alternatives for humanity. So I think that's kind of good to know going into it. Don't expect Huxley to fix your problem. He's just going to sound the alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, looking at progress the way he does is not a conventional way of thinking about progress. And by definition, um, it means going forward, and forward is better than backwards. And uh, Huxley argues that outward progress is not the same as personal and interpersonal development or or internal progress. And um, outward progress without this corresponding inward progress, what it produces is really just an opportunity for evil and tyranny to wreak havoc on a much grander scale than they could have done in a more primitive state. The problem with this world, uh, especially on the individual level, like we're going to see in the characters of Bernard and Lenina, uh, we've already embraced and generally accepted so many ideas that terrify them. I would go so far as to say we likely can identify with Bernard and Lenina, uh, or at least with how they live their lives. But before we meet them, I want to bring up something we didn't mention about Huxley last week, but that I find very interesting. Huxley was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature nine times between the years 1938 and 1960, but he never won. Uh, His ideas were taken seriously during his lifetime, uh, but yet never acknowledged with that ultimate affirmation of success, the Nobel Prize. And we know this today because those nominations are made public 50 years later or in the latest case for him, 2014. You have to wait a long time to find out you get a shout out. (laughs) Uh, Well, Huxley pulled the title. I want to talk about that for a second. Brave New World from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. You know, Miranda, who's a primary character in the play, says this. Oh, wonder how many goodly creatures are there here. How beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. And one of the ironies that the title comes from this play is that no one knows that the title comes from this play. They don't get the Shakespearean illusion. And why not? Because we don't read Shakespeare anymore. And Huxley would say, that's my point. Why don't you read it? You don't read it because it's boring? Because it's irrelevant? Well, why is that? People have found it relevant and not boring for 500 years. And that's a long time after the language was obsolete and difficult to understand. How come you don't understand it? And I think he's going to say there's nothing wrong with Shakespeare, but it's our conditioning and the media-driven world that we live in that's the problem. We're being conditioned. We don't even think about it, but we avoid engagement with intense emotion. We avoid words. We avoid difficult ideas. We're conditioned 
not to pay attention to anything longer than 15 seconds. We're conditioned to respond to memes, to pictures, not words. So who's doing this? Is this a design? (laughs) (laughs) Huxley would say yes and yes. And um, although we haven't been decanted from a bottle, uh, we are being subjected to the same strategies that come after that bottle phase, and for the same reasons, uh, we're conditioned to morph us into compliant alphas and betas and deltas and gammas and epsilons, really kind of depending on our current place in society. Political and economic powers uh, condition us to be consumers and self-involved consumers that are totally dedicated to consumption. And uh, what are the easiest things to consume? Lust and euphoria. But Those are not goals. The goal is power and control from the top. I think that's an interesting point. Uh, In Brave New World Revisited, you know, the essay we've referenced a bunch of times that Huxley wrote 25 years after he wrote the book, he breaks down a lot of these ideas in essay form instead of story form. And he starts with what he sees as the driving problem of planet Earth, which wasn't what I would have thought. He said the, the driving problem is overpopulation. Population grows exponentially, and of course we know this, but we also know that the amount of resources is finite. I mean, things aren't changing. The amount of water today is what it was originally created. Nothing's created, destroyed. You know, we even I know that about science. It's nature. But Huxley saw overpopulation as the problem from which all these other problems that he's going to talk about come from. Problems like overorganization today. Obviously, the world has 9 billion people I mean, with no end in sight. Huxley would, would just go nuts. I mean, <laughs> Gary, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first, uh, we can be relieved to know that he was wrong about us starving ourselves to death within that, that Malthusian theory. <laughs> uh, through science and technology, uh, the earth produces enough food to feed itself so that, uh, you know, in and of itself, isn't, that isn't currently the problem. However, uh, indirectly, yeah, there, there's a lot of problems with large numbers of people living in small spaces, and he addresses those. And large urban areas um, are anonymous environments, and space is a scarce commodity, and distributing resources to everyone is a problem. And uh, today we still have a large dependency on slave labor in the world for an increasing supply of cheap mass-produced goods and services, and uh, large groups of people living together create a need for over-organization, mass production, distribution of resources, and that has to be controlled by a central power in order to be efficient. For Huxley, this is where all the danger lies. This is where our biology comes into conflict with the natural progression of technology. Um, You know, for progress to occur, freedom and interpersonal connection must be suppressed at the altar of organization and efficiency. That's a pretty deep idea. You know, in other words, in large urban environments, we can't care about our neighbors. They are not our friends. We can't let people do what they want. We live in uh, too close proximity to them. Uh, If my neighbor is too loud, it affects my sleep. If the person down the road eats too much greasy food, my costs go up. (laughs) You know, so to live together... We have to fit more and more into a uh, singly designed box. Um, The problem is we're not made to be locked up. We're also not made to be disconnected. But technology facilitates not just our being disconnected, but also 
the control outside forces to force us to conform to believe specific things and behave in certain ways. And, you know, Huxley finds this dangerous for our mental health. Let me read what Huxley says about our biology. Okay. Uniformity and mental health are incompatible to man is not made to be an automaton. And if he becomes one, the basis for mental health is destroyed. In the course of evolution, nature has gone to endless trouble to see that every individual is unlike every other individual. We produce our kind by bringing the father's genes into contact with the mother's. These hereditary factors may be combined in an almost infinite number of ways. Physically and mentally, each one of us is unique. Any culture which, in the interest of efficiency or in the name of some political or religious dogma, seeks to standardize the human individual, commits an outrage against man's biological nature. Interesting. So, you know, so what does he mean? Uh, he means humans aren't really good with being controlled. <laughs> I don't like it. It messes with our brains and our souls. And we're, we're also not good at handling power. Power changes us. And centralized control is too much power in too few hands. And for whatever reason, it always turns into tyranny. You know, let me quote Huxley again. There seems to be a touching belief among certain PhDs in sociology that PhDs in sociology will never be corrupted by power. Like Sir Galahad's, their strength is as the strength of tin because their heart is pure, and their heart is pure because they are scientists and have taken 6,000 hours of social studies. Alas, higher education is not necessarily a guarantee of higher virtue or higher political wisdom. And on these misgivings on ethical and psychological grounds must be added misgivings of a purely scientific character. Can we accept the theories on which social engineers base their practice and in terms of which they justify their manipulations of human beings? (laughs) Man, he's hard. He's cutting to the core here. You know, Huxley isn't necessarily worried about science, but even the purest scientists are human, and that's their flaw. And, you know, uh, things like the Internet and smartphones and computers, lasers and biomedical tracking and geo-tracking and digital currency, you know, all of our day-to-day conveniences of our lives are nice. Uh, But by necessity, they are controlled by fewer and fewer people. And these people will turn on us in the brave new world, big business and big government have merged by necessity. But most people are conditioned to not really care. They are willing to trade quite a lot for leisure and comfort and fun. And, you know, really the questions he asks is how far is too far for comfort and convenience? Uh, If we want Siri to turn our lights out at night on command, we also have to allow her to listen to all of our conversations. You know, is that good? Well, it's a trade-off almost all of us have come to terms with and have accepted. And um, Huxley would say we do that at our own peril because these same conveniences are also tools for our own social engineering. It's eerie, (laughs) isn't it? I know. And he goes on to make this comparison, which I like. Brave New World presents a fanciful and somewhat robot picture of a society in which the attempt to recreate human beings in the likeness of termites has been pushed almost to the limits of the possible. He says this further on. 
The new social ethic is replacing our traditional ethical system, the system in which the individual is primary. The key words in this social ethic are adjustment, adaptation, socially oriented behavior, belongingness, acquisition of social skills, teamwork, group living, group loyalty, group dynamics, group thinking, group creativity. Its basic assumption is that the social whole has greater worth and significance than its individual parts, that inborn biological differences should be sacrificed to cultural uniformity, that the rights of the collectivity take precedent over what the 18th century called the rights of man. Now, that sounds really complicated, but again, you know, he's using words that are positive things that we think are positive and are positive, words like teamwork and belongingness. And I read this, I have to think, working together is a good thing. Of course it is. But he uses good words to mean bad things. And as I, <laughs> I know all the time. And as I read chapter three and watch him develop these characters, Bernard and Lenita, they're the main ones, but there's also Fanny and Henry and all these other nameless people, these standard alpha and beta people. And, and we listen as Mustafa Mann explains the history of this futuristic world. We can see that these are positive things, positively pitched things, but they're actually bad. <laughs> Reality is really the opposite of how he's explaining it to these students. That's why you can't read this book without being under, having a sense of irony. Chapter three is a weird chapter because what we have is, what Huxley has done is he's juxtaposed Mustafa Mond is delivering a value. So he's lecturing to these students and he's teaching them and he says something about this world and then Huxley will cut the scene into a character who's living out this fleshed reality. And so it's kind of all strung together, basically back and forth and you're supposed to notice the irony. Everything sounds good, but it's bad. <laughs> so let's quote Mustafa Mon as he lectures his students. For example, he says this, Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, but there were also husbands, wives, lovers. There were also monogamy and romance. Though you probably don't know what those are, said Mustafa Mond. They shook their heads. Family, monogamy, romance, everywhere exclusiveness, a narrow channeling of impulse and energy. But everyone belongs to everyone else. He concluded, citing the hypnopatic proverb. The students nodded, emphatically agreeing with the statement, which upwards of 62,000 repetitions in the dark had made them accept not merely as truth, but as axiomatic self-evidence, utterly indisputable. Which is an interesting. The more you hear something, the more it becomes self-evident and utterly indisputable. And so that's what we have. On the one hand, we hear Mustafa Mon talk about the importance of conditioning children to promiscuous behavior, to condition us to not form bonds with other humans. Then we cut and we're over here listening to Lenina and Fanny talk about this very shallow and pointless dating life that they have while they're showering. This is their reality, a reality where they don't talk about men except in the context of their physical attributes. Man as meat. That's how Bernard describes it later in the story. The men have no purpose in the world except to serve as playmates. 
And one playmate really is just as good as another. So we have this motto in society, which really is pitched as something positive. Everyone belongs to everyone. Well, in other words, we're seeing in these characters' lives that everyone is interchangeable with everyone else. I mean, going out with one man is just as good as any other. Exactly. In fact, sticking to one is frowned upon professionally. I mean, Fanny fusses at Lenina because she isn't sleeping with enough men, and that's going to give her a bad look. Let me quote her. This is what she says. But seriously, she said, I really do think you ought to be careful. It's such horribly bad form to go on and on like this with one man. At 40 or 35, it wouldn't be so bad. But at your age, Lenina? No, it really won't do. And you know how strongly the DHC objects to anything intense or long-drawn. Four months of Henry Foster without having another man? Why, he'd be furious if he knew. (laughs) You know, what's interesting is that no one has a sense of really owning their own bodies either. And everyone belongs to everyone else. So, uh, you know, it's not insulting when the uh, directory uh, pats Lennon on the behind. I mean, in fact... Uh, His molestation is described as triumphant by Fanny as a sign of his being a perfect gentleman. (laughs) I I caught that, too. You know, Lynetta decides to go out on a date uh, with this new man, one of the few men she hasn't slept with yet. Uh, And she hasn't because he's weird. And what's weird about him is he's too short. And that's a bad thing. And this man who can't get much many dates because he's too short is Bernard Marx. (laughs) Marks, huh? I want to bring up these names that <laughs> are in do. the story. You know, the the names are assigned to them uh, as they are labeled in the production line, and they're not family names because there's no family. Uh, they're randomly assigned, and they make no connections between individuals. And uh, of course, there are only ten thousand permitted names in the Brave New World, and. All our names uh, must are recognized, although the names mean nothing to the characters in the story. And Mustafa uh, has told us that history is bunk. You know, Henry Ford said that, by the way. Uh, but the irony is that these are recognizable names of people that have significantly altered the history of our planet that we recognize. And yet their individual contributions have been erased. Every name is a recognizable titan of business and politics and uh, they are important names historically, and some are bad or good, but, you know, that's not what matters. Uh, their individual impacts were significant. For example, Lenin, as in Lenina. <laughs> I got it. That's not a hard reach, <laughs> no. is it? You know, the world would be a very different place if Lenin had not existed. And it's the same connection with Bernard, which is equally obvious. His name is Bernard Marx, after Karl Marx. But his first name is also taken from an important person, George Bernard Shaw, the important playwright who wrote, among other things, Pygmalion, you know, a piece that we have featured on the podcast. All the names are connected to specific people, influential ones from around the globe. Uh, You know, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk reorganized and rebuilt Turkey after World War I. Watson is the notable psychologist we talked about in the last episode. Henry, as in Henry Ford, um, and so, I mean, every name is Huxley's reminder that uh, individuals really kind of mark our humanity and uh, that in our world, uh, each of us has an impact in our world. And we matter, some in greater ways than others, but our significance is that we matter to each other, to someone, you know, as a mother, 
a father, a teacher, a friend, um, you know, an inventor and an educator, uh, whatever your impact on this planet might be uh, in relation to the other people in your orbit. I mean, these characters are ironically conditioned to accept that no one is an individual. Everyone belongs to everyone else. No one is significant. It's all stated in the positive, but you could say it in the negative. I mean, Mustafa Mond is also saying no one matters to anyone. No one has autonomy over themselves. He literally says, fortunate boys, no pains have been spared to make your lives emotionally easy, to preserve so far as that is possible from having emotions at all. You know, I mean, what does this mean? It means that no one can betray you because no one has an expectation of loyalty. No one can hurt you because no one loves you. There's no sadness when a loved one dies because there's no loved ones. You know, when Henry and Lenina are on their date, uh, they fly over the the slough crematorium and uh, they can see the smoke come up from the burnt bodies being cremated. And this is not a negative or a sad place. In fact, the brave new world has turned it into a positive. I mean, there's no attachment to each other, you know, but there's no attachment to yourself either. Yeah, let me read what they say about those smokestacks. Phosphorus recovery, explained Henry telegraphically. On their way up the chimney, the gases go through four separate treatments. P2O5 used to go right out of circulation every time they cremated someone. Now they recover over 98% of it. More than a kilo and a half per adult corpse, which makes the best part of 400 tons of phosphorus every year from England alone. Henry spoke with a happy pride, rejoicing wholeheartedly in the achievement as though it had been his own. Fine to think we can go on being socially useful even after we're dead, making plants grow. (laughs) In other words... (laughs) Human recycling. Yeah, and it's a good thing. I'm so looking forward to it. You go into the compost pile, and it's a great (laughs) victory for mankind. Well, and I want to bring up, because I think this kind of transitions into this, the idea uh, of promiscuous behavior. I mean, it's all over the book. Both children, I mean, the children are raised in a factory, uh, and, and it's a promiscuous environment, but promiscuity is also a part of these semi-religious experiences. It's encouraged from the age of six onward. Uh, And it can't just be because there's a physical pleasant sensation. Why do they get kids started on what they call erotic play as early as they can physically do it? Man, what a controversial topic. But, you know, the answer lies actually in the meaning of sex. And what is the purpose of it? You know, obviously, uh, sex has a physical component that's pleasurable. And so one purpose is physical gratification. Um, but it also has a spiritual purpose. I mean, uh, it's a it's a big part of our individual identity. You know, the spiritual and personal violation more than the physical one is why uh, rape is such uh, has such damaging and long term consequences for victims. And sex is the ultimate expression of our individuality, of our independence and our our free will. In a free society, we own, if nothing else, ourselves. And sex is the ultimate expression of that. Uh, We do with it what we want. And also, uh, sex can and is often used by individuals to build intimacy and connection with another person that elevates that person as being special, uh, you know, as being significant. It can be a statement that two people find deep, significant value in each other in a unique way that elevates one person over all the other people. And 
In a sexual relationship that is monogamous or exclusive, uh, by definition, a person doesn't belong to everyone else or, or anyone else even. In Brave New World, this has all been eroded. Uh, even Bernard Marx, who, uh, who one of the two people to understand that he's an individual, still sees man as meat. He's not free from his conditioning. Uh, Linina is a commodity, something to be had, something to be consumed. And so when we get to the end of chapter five, you know, they've had their dates. Um, Bernard has completed his solidarity service with Morgana, the woman he randomly, and I say regrettably, sits next to when he arrives at Westminster. Morgana turns to him and says, did you think it was wonderful? And this is how Bernard responds to himself, not to her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I thought it was wonderful. He lied and looked away. The sight of her transfigured face was at once an accusation and an ironical reminder of his own separateness. He was as miserably isolated now as he had been when the service began, more isolated by reason of his unreplenished emptiness, his dead satiety. Separate and unatoned, while the others were being fused into the greater being, alone, even in Morgana's embrace, much more alone, indeed, more hopelessly himself than he had ever been in his life before. He had emerged from that crimson twilight into the common electric glare with a self-consciousness intensified to the pitch of agony. He was utterly miserable, and perhaps, her shining eyes accused him, perhaps it was his own fault. Quite wonderful, he repeated, but the only thing he could think of was Morgana's eyebrow. <laughs> it's what bothered him. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the the characters have each other, and that's progress. I mean, uh, because for this world, real happiness is defined as physical gratification. and Intimacy is simulated with sex between many people, but not experienced, and Community, uh, religious or spiritual connection is simulated with this ceremony, but also not experienced. These are strangers. In both cases, oneness is redefined for us. You know, not as people connecting with each other, but people being interchangeable with each other. Really, the death of the individual. Exactly. And Huxley's argument is that happiness as defined as physical gratification is something that can and does exist. However, it costs you and it can cost you your mental health because it affects your soul, your spirit, depending on the word you want to use for that part of your being. Uh, But this is a problem that science can also solve. Oh, good. So we introduce Soma. (laughs) A gram is better than a dam. All the advantages of Christianity and alcohol None of their defects. Delicious Soma. Half a gram for a half holiday. A gram for a weekend. Two grams for a trip to the gorgeous east. Three for a dark eternity on the moon. And Brave New World Revisited. I know we've referenced it before. But in that book, Huckley admits that Soma is not a real thing. It's not LSD or marijuana or heroin or any specific drug that we actually know today. The original Soma was this thing he got from the ancient Aryan invaders of India that they used for a religious rite. In that context, they had a a plant and the juice of the plant was drunk by the priests and the nobles during a religious ceremony. And it was so intoxicating and euphoric 
that even though it was dangerous and if they weren't careful, the overdoses could cause death, the transcendence of the experience was so worth it that people were willing to pay any price to drink it, including death. So that's where he got the idea. But the fictional Soma wasn't like the old Soma. It has zero physical drawbacks. In small doses, I mean, and this is where you see the dram for this and the two drams for that. Huxley, you know, in small doses, it can be bliss. It can put you to sleep. It can make you see visions, all with no side effects, supposedly. It's how they killed you at age 62. <laughs> you just would go on a Soma holiday, and all of a sudden you're in that smokestack. <laughs> there you go. Being uh, repurposed and recycled. Exactly. You know, Huxley saw drugs and the control it has over people as an obvious political tool. I mean, any dictator could uh, secure the world from political unrest by just drugging people up and keeping them in a servile condition. And the obvious question um, Huxley asks and then answers is how could a dictator force billions of people to become drug addicts? Now, let me read his answer. In all probability, it will be enough merely to make the pills available. Today, alcohol and tobacco are available, and people spend considerably more on these very unsatisfactory euphorics and pseudo-stimulants and sedatives than they are ready to spend on the education of their children. Or consider the barbiturates and the tranquilizers. In the U.S., these drugs can be obtained only on a doctor's prescription. But the demand of the American public for something that will make life in an urban industrial environment a little more tolerable is so great that doctors are not writing prescriptions of various tranquilizers, or they're now writing them really at the rate of 48 million a year. Moreover, a majority of these prescriptions are refilled. A hundred doses of happiness are not enough. Send to the drugstore for another bottle. And when that is finished for another, there could be no doubt if tranquilizers could be bought as easily and cheaply as aspirin, they would be consumed not by the billions they are present, but by the scores and hundreds of billions. So, wow. So it goes on to add this too. As well as tranquilizing, hallucinating, and stimulating, the soma of my fable had the power of heightening suggestibility and so could be used to reinforce the effects of governmental propaganda. Uh, he finishes his discussion on soma by concluding this. Um, Meanwhile, pharmacology, biochemistry, and neurology are on the march, and we can be quite certain that in the course of the next few years, New and better chemical methods for increasing suggestibility and lowering psychological resistance will be discovered. Like everything else, these discoveries may be used well or badly. They may help the psychiatrist in his battle against mental illness, or they may help the dictator in his battle against freedom. More probably, since science is divinely impartial, they will both enslave and make free, heal, and at the same time destroy. Whew, did he call it or what? Well, he's, he's got more than a few things to say about drugs. Yeah, the drugs, the sex, the science. I mean, they're all basically strategies of politics and commerce. And politics and commerce for Huxley are the same thing. And I'm going to quote him. Pure science does not remain pure indefinitely. Sooner or later, it is apt to turn into applied science and finally into technology. Theory modulates into industrial practice. Knowledge becomes power. 
formulas and laboratory experiments undergo a metamorphosis and emerge as the H-bomb. There's his evidence. Whoa. Huxley said that everything scientifically crafted can be used to manipulate our spirits to feel satisfied. They can manipulate us to feel happy, to accept life as we're told to accept it. And that works well until it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) And in our story, uh, we're going to have two people in the brave new world that have problems with their perfect conditioning. Bernard Marx is one. Apparently, as we're told, alcohol accidentally was introduced into his bottle. And that's why he's too short to be an alpha. Alphas aren't supposed to be as short as him, but he had a little bit of the alcohol. He's unattractive. So because of this, he has trouble getting women to sleep with him. He feels inferior because he has to look up to the other alphas and the other lower cast don't look at him right. Uh, they're drawbacks for sure, but these drawbacks had the unintended consequence of allowing Marx to kind of break the grip of the conditioning, and he knows he's an individual. He understands that he's unique. He's not the only one. There's another person who isn't conditioned perfectly for a different reason, and that's Hermholtz Watson. This is how Huxley describes these two men in Chapter 4. Yes, a little too able. They were right. A mental excess had produced in Helmholtz Watson effects very similar to those which, in Bernard Marx, were the result of a physical defect. Two little bone and brawn had isolated Bernard from his fellow men, and the sense of this apartness being all by the current standards a mental excess became, in his turn, a cause of wider separation. That which made Helmholtz so uncomfortably aware of being himself and all alone was too much ability. What the two men shared was the knowledge that they were individuals. But whereas the physically defective Bernard had suffered all of his life from the consciousness of being separate, it was only quite recently that, or grown aware of in his mental excess, that Helmholtz Watson had also become aware of his difference from the people who were surrounding him. So basically... Bernard knows he's an individual because he's an inferior one. And Watson knows he's an individual because he's a superior one. Exactly. And as a result of their individualism, really of Marx's individualism, we get to have our story. (laughs) In chapter six, Bernard finally gets a date with a beautiful woman. He's going to take Lenina to a primitive reservation where they're going to be introduced to the closest thing we'll have to a hero in our story. Well, he's at least a protagonist, John the Savage. John (laughs) Savage. John, that's his name. It's taken from John the Baptist in the Bible, who literally is the voice of one crying in the desert. Another biblical (laughs) allusion there. You know, well, next episode, uh, we will see this contrasting primitive world as Lenina and Bernard visit it. And uh, we saw a day in the life of the Brave New World. Now let's look at a day in the life of a primitive one. And, you know, finally, in the third section of the book, Huxley brings the worlds together as John the Savage enters the new world. And uh, we're supposed to be John Savage in some ways. And when John Savage faces off with Mustafa Mond, Huxley concludes his warning to us, but he also leaves us wondering, are we already living in a brave new world? And if not yet, 
Is it avoidable? All right. Well, thanks for being with us. Um, as always, we like to ask you to uh, get in contact with us through our social media. Check us out on all the usual places, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, also, uh, look at our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. You'll find all kind of great teaching resources there for the classroom. Thanks again. Peace out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.